Welcome to Faith Restructured. I'm Cole. And I'm Mike. Here we cover topics on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction. We discuss books that have helped us through the process, and we'll interview some friends and experts along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. What are you doing, small? You ever just look at your person and think, oh my gosh, how did I land such an amazing co-host? Look at that man across the screen that none of you can see. Mr. Mike Kramer with us in the house. Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Faith Restructured. Wow. You know, we haven't really been hitting our Thursday deadline. Get over it. <laughs> Wow. Well, there it is, folks. Cole's sick, if you can't tell, and I'm coming off of my own little sickness, but neither of us have COVID, and that's what matters. This is a reminder that there are a lot of other things that make your sinuses suck in the world. But Dude, we turned on our air or our heat, and ever since then, I just been like, Phew. I'm in a building, like my, my apartment yeah. is like from a house from like 1903, and it's just old radiator heat. The moment the temperature goes below 72, like, or uh, 62, rather, that, that radiator heat cranks on, but it doesn't turn off fast enough for if it gets cool again or warm again. So, like, this October weather where it's, like, 50 degrees one day and 80 the next, I just walk into my apartment and I feel like I'm not oh, going to yeah. make it. That's not good for you, but hey, yeah. whatever. Welcome back. Faith Restructured. Like we've said, we are wrapping up the first season and hey, we are like almost there. We have two more episodes for you, this one and one more. And then we start the process of planning for season two. Whoa. We never thought we would say those words. We weren't really coming into this with any expectations of it being anything worthwhile or not. And we have just found that it has not only been worthwhile for us but it seems like it's been worthwhile for some people in our life who we lives who we uh, truly care about and so if you're listening to us thanks for journeying with us we have this episode and one more for you we've got a i've got vacation time planned where i'm going to go out and visit with mike we're going to sit down hash some of this stuff out record tons of episodes all this content we're going to slumber party <laughs> i'm just kidding but we're going to have a good time and we're going to we're looking forward to what we can uh, do in season two and how this can take a new shape and a new form as we uh, move into that new place. Yeah, man. Today. And can you believe it? We're finally, finally done with Richard Rohr's The Wisdom Pattern. And that makes it sound so bad, but like, uh, so I'd already read the book and then we kind of put this on hold. And so I've been rereading it here and there for mm. these episodes. And I'm like, <clears throat> Man, this was is way all better. I do, listen to Richard Rohr. <laughs> it was way just way better when I read it like in a week rather than yeah. like over the span of months. So something tells me many of you aren't actually reading it. You're just listening to these episodes, and that's fine. But I hey, will say totally I just was talking to a dear friend of mine who's like he's not a, quite on the Richard Rohr. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. You talk to the animals, Francis. Yeah, man. Um and he was joke. he's not read Richard Rohr, but he has heard some things that makes him a little skeptical. And then he sent me this article and I read the article that was like a review of his one book, The Universal Christ. And I just thought the review is just really bad, like because yeah. 
I read the book and I'm like, I don't think this is what he was saying at all. And so on the one hand, I was like, dude, you should just read the book yourself. I think you'd actually really enjoy Roar's writing because I know this guy super well. Um, But then I realized like that's what we're doing, too. Like we're (laughs) we're trying to like boil down some key points in a 200 page book Mm -hmm. for you all. Yeah. But the best thing you can do is read it yourself and and then this be like in addition to that, because it the worst thing you could do is judge the guy based on what we're saying about him. We're trying to yeah. give you our perspective, but uh, we want to think the best of ourselves like this guy that wrote this fancy book review uh, of his other book. And I was like, I'm not the smartest guy, but I'm pretty sure you missed the mark with this. So <laughs> maybe we're missing the mark and it takes wisdom a pattern of wisdom one would might say to Maybe really even, get it you know chapters 10 and 11 <laughs> yeah what we're jumping into today first one is limits are good teachers the second one is when we get there i will tell you what the title that is because i don't remember it right now it's living with <laughs> shadow cool oh yeah that's the one right the so gobbledum. uh limits are good teachers i think this one of the things I've really appreciated about this book, Mike, you don't have to share this same sentiment, is Roar always does a really good job for me in balancing, taking you in a in a new direction and also reminding you of the past and also reminding you of what you're grounded in and the traditions that you come from and the, the places that you may be at at this moment. And reminding us that that's okay, even if we see something in the in the future or some direction of progress that we want to head, it is okay that we are in the place we are at right now. Um, and I think he does a decent job of balancing that in this in this chapter. You know, limits are good teachers is kind of you know the idea is that hey, it's not always bad if we don't always jump on board with every single thing that happens right away. Because it's just the thing that, you know, it's the, it's the popular thing. It's the thing that's happening in the moment. It's the direction. It seems like everyone else is going. It's okay to have questions about that. It's okay to kind of hold back in those moments. But um, it's, also, it's also something we have to be aware of as well. Um, and I think that that piece of, piece of roar just kind of always resonates with me really, really well. Right. And ideologically, he's pointing to, again, some of the language of like postmodernism being the the deconstruction route of like, let's take down all boundaries because we can't trust how we got these boundaries. Yep. I would say at its best, though, it's not leaving it at, you know, total uh, a total wasteland. It's just saying we need to understand why the limits we currently have in our particular cultures, families, traditions exist, um, but not saying that no boundaries is the goal. Uh, I think sometimes that's what we think we want when in reality, like it can be some of the most self-destructive way um, that we function. So that's the kind of the heart of this chapter is not saying that like we need limits and boundaries everywhere, but limits can be good teachers. Uh, I'll say personally, like, you know, I'm only 27 and I was goofing with someone the other day about how like man, at what age did you start taking vitamins? Cause I feel like really like I need to start doing that. Like I started taking them in the last year or so. And it's like, I'm recognizing at 27. Like I am not as, uh, 
I don't recover as well. Cole made fun of me before we started recording because he was like, man, you look really sick. I was like, really? I don't feel like it. He's like, look at them bags under your eyes. It's like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> at 27, I don't bounce back from a bad night's sleep as as mm-hmm. good as I once did. I used to like pride myself in being able to sleep anywhere, like on the floor, in jeans. Now, if I use the wrong pillow, I'm like, man, my neck is just not right. <laughs> and so it's like. I have to recognize that like I have limits. Now you can challenge your limits. You can try to work beyond your limits, but knowing that there are limits in place is a really important like cognitive step so that you can actually live well where you are. But if you are under the like the delusion that there are no limits and like the only limit is yourself, it's like, no, like some people are just good at certain things and bad at certain things. You can get better at the things you're bad at, but you'll never be as good at those as the things you're great at. Like, and you take that and expand it all over your life. And you have to recognize that limits exist for a reason, both mm-hmm. in your own capacity and in the things that we do as a culture. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, there's two sides of that coin, which is we have our own personal limits and our own uh, what what um, Roar calls the false self, right? That the side of us that's really ego-based and all that stuff rather than um, this this self that we can attain that doesn't live in the dualities and things like that. But then there's also the limits that we have on institutions and the limits that institutions have imposed on themselves that we don't like that they've done or the, you know, all that stuff is going to come up in this chapter. And I think it's just been been really good to, to see these sorts of things play out. And I, we've talked about it before too. You know, we talk about a template we talk about uh, how we have done a lot of work over a long period of time and we expect everybody else to be at the same place that we are 10 years later <laughs> right. that day. We expect them to be there the same day that we are there. And that's just not true. That's just not true of the arrival of things. And, and Roar kind of kicks the book, the book off well in that way, or this chapter off well in that way, I think. He says, as I've discussed earlier in this book, one of the bad effects of philosophy of progress, postmodernism, that sort of idea, is that it allowed a group of people to grow up without a sense of appropriate and necessary limits. In the era of supposed limitless progress, we've expected far too much from one another. And so I think just kind of kicking off in that place where Roar's, Roar's more focused on the individual at this level and saying like, hey, if we buy into that idea, which is totally fine to be somebody who is progress-based or looking to keep continually growing and making progress in their life, that doesn't, we impose the same limitlessness that we have on ourselves onto other people. And that just doesn't take into account all the different ideologies, all the different places that people find themselves at uh, constantly on the human journey. And how about the different starting points, right? Like we all come from different backgrounds. Like even, even when it looks the same on paper, like, oh, you had two parents and you had two siblings just like me and all, and you were, you know, middle-class or, you know, whatever it is, even within all those same like parameters, there's a vast difference in like your emotional capacity, your mental capacity, your spiritual capacity, et cetera, et cetera. So like, if we're not starting in the same place and we're not taking the same journey, we can't expect people to wake up and be in the same place. It's, it's just naive. Um, something he goes on a little bit uh, further to say beyond that quote you just read, this is on uh, 172 into 173 uh, in response to some of the, uh, the progress approach with no limits. 
He says, now we've got a widespread complaint from young people that they hate themselves. If we really believe that the small self, he's talking about ego there, uh, can be whole, or if we try to build our self-image on other people's responses, we're set up for disaster. The most we will gain is a momentary rush of significance, episodic self-esteem that will last a couple of days, but it can't be sustained except by upping the dosage, which finally becomes the addictive and destructive personality. Conversely, we'll live beneath everyone else's judgments and critiques. It's no surprise that the word codependent emerged so strongly in recent decades. Secular people have no other place to live except in a revolving hall of mirrors, which themselves are being mirrored by other mirrors. That's scary. It's created a very fragile kind of person. Self-esteem, however, comes naturally when I'm aligned with who I am in God. So what he's pointing towards, and I think both of us see, I don't want to speak for you, but in youth ministry, like the rising mental health awareness, like mm. we're able to name mental health problems in a way that people didn't 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems like that the, the problems are growing, that more and more people are experiencing this, especially in, in the wake of COVID and stuff like that. But the, the, the idea being that like, if we have no limits, right. And our personalities are just supposed to be like constantly progressing. Well, when you're self-aware enough to realize you're not progressing the way that people put out that they are right. I'm just, you know, it's been hard, but I made myself out of nothing, you know? And it's like, Oh wow, I'm not doing that. Like I must be terrible because this other person is great. Now you're not only like seeking someone's approval to feel good about yourself, but more often than not, you're feeling terrible about yourself seeing that you're not getting that from other people. Now, uh, I think a cynical response to this would be like, well, just don't care what people think, which is pretty nonsensical at the end of the day. Like, yeah, thank you for that little nugget of wisdom. Just don't care what people think, except you have and to care what people 10 think. Years, and for 10 years, I've tried. But you're right. Right. <laughs> well, it's just it try just going to become heartless. Try working your job without caring what your boss thinks. Let's see how long that works for you. Try uh, (laughs) succeeding in a marriage without caring what your spouse thinks. Try being a good friend without caring what your friends think. Uh, I have had more friendships that like have fizzled out because it feels like people aren't like mutually caring for one another's uh, thoughts, values, opinions than not. Because it's not about like agreeing on everything. It's about having a mutual sense of respect and value. And what he's pointing at here is like self-esteem is something that is is non-existent when we're constantly codependent. And in the secular world, which he's pointing to, when there's no real sense of communal existence, right? It's all about the individual, your individual progress, and it doesn't really matter. So Mm. it because when you're looking for other people to co-sign your progress and they don't, then you're going to rely on them like a crutch. And that's what causes this codependency. And you're trying to mirror something. It's kind of like middle school, like people make jokes and you make jokes just to get the attention off of you long enough that no one's looking Mm -hmm. at you. And it's just that, but it's never ending. And his point kind of wrapping that up is self-esteem comes naturally when your identity, like when you're truly finding your identity with who you are in Christ. Not just like, oh, Jesus says I'm redeemed. Jesus says I am valuable. It's like, no, like finding exactly who God has made you specifically to be, that enables you to have a different kind of self-esteem that doesn't require people around you to say, oh yeah, like Cole, you're great today because you did the thing I wanted you to do. Yeah. Um, Maybe 
let's stop for a second and unpack the word secular because yeah. I think we have used that a couple of times in the podcast and we probably haven't done a good job of that because what it typically falls under is like there's the world and then there's God. And that's not necessarily a bad definition of it. We just have kind of, I think, an unhealthy view of what that means because we think as soon as we've ex- quote unquote accepted Jesus into our hearts um, that we no longer like have access to that secular world, that the secular world is something outside of almost outside of a Christian reality, <laughs> if mm. that makes sense. And that couldn't be anything further from the truth. I think when people like Roar use the word secular, um, what they mean are is people who are moving through the world by a different set of standards than the standards of the kingdom of God. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I just quick Googled Oxford Dictionary. It says denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that are not religiously or spiritually based. Yeah. So, and I think Cole and I are in the same place on this in, in a large way. And I think Roar probably too, based on his other writings. But this is a helpful term in one sense to, to give us, it, it's helpful in the same way that conservative and liberal are helpful and that it gives mm-hmm. you like a broad thing to aim <laughs> at, but it gives you no actual traction because fundamentally, I don't think there's really anything that's secular, right? I think we secularize things. Right. We try to remove the spiritual value of things. We tell ourselves secular. Everything can be spiritual. Yeah. Right. We tell ourselves that these things don't have spiritual value. Right. Oh, yeah. The way I spend my money, that doesn't really it's not really spiritual. Like if I get coffee from this place or from that place. But I think it can be. It has the capacity to be Um, when he's saying secular here. I think you're right. Secular people, as in people that are not actively seeking out. I think that's a great definition, dude not actively seeking to live out the kingdom of God or live by kingdom ethics. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to point out that there are plenty of people that live by kingdom ethics without calling it that. Yeah. You know, so what do we do with that? Yeah. So rather like where, where we typically hear that is like the old, uh, you know, I don't know, (laughs) cowboy preacher, I guess. I don't know (laughs) what the term is where it's like, and the world will tell you blah, blah, blah. But I'm here to tell you, God will tell you blah, blah, blah. And again, not not bad, but it sets us up to be like these people who are supposed to like, you know, the, the in this world, but not of it thing, sort of um, the I, uh, you know, I'm not I don't belong to this world. I belong to. Sure, that that is. But we're using that very like tactically or tangibly like we don't live by the standards of this world we live by the standards of heaven and it's like yeah but it's a very ideological thing that we're talking about there we're not actually saying like we're living by something else we're living by these ethics and these practices and these ideologies and this specifically for for people of uh or for followers of jesus we're living by these standards that christ sets for us and uh, we're living to participate in that and imitate that and so um when we say secular we're saying like these these are things that don't line up with kingdom ethics or or what jesus has called us to in the future so um that was just like a little turn because i could like 
as I'm thinking through what we're doing in this podcast, I'm like the term secular, if I'm deconstructing faith still, like I'm uncomfortable with that term yeah, um, because it, it sees the world as like, well, it's gross and uh, we just got to get out of here. And it's not really true. Like we can, we can work through these things and, and we can find, find the, find where the, the kingdom side of things um, comes into. An play. awesome summary and visual of that is if you guys go on YouTube or bibleproject.org, look up their video on heaven and heaven and earth. It's mm. awesome. But basically it, it just picture a Venn diagram as a long story, short summary. Uh, one circle is the earth and it's generally scribbled on with black marker because of sin or fallenness and heaven is overlapping with that. And as heaven overlaps with earth, it's actually removing some of that black scribble mm. that heaven is redeeming these parts of earth. Because remember creation, our, our creation theology is so important. Creation was made good. Mm. It wasn't like, and creation was made or, and the planet and the earth and the, the animals existed and the waters and was terrible. <laughs> and we, and it existed for the sake of humans later. No, it was all good. And humans. Yeah. Very good. But all of God's creation was good. And part of that, our idea and our theology behind redemption is how do we redeem those things? And that's what the yeah. kingdom of God is all about. Um, so here, here's where Roar goes with this. Now that we kind of have a shared understanding of the word secular, whether you agree with it or not, that's where we're coming from. He goes on to say like the ego, the false self, the small self, the autonomous I, right? The, the only me and, and, and my things, right? Is the branch cut off from the vine is useless, which is a, which is a, a, a nod to scripture, John 15. He says, we had the right idea about being whole, but the trouble is that we thought we could do it independently and within our private personality. That is the eternal lie of the ego. The ego refuses to admit its own limits and boundaries and thus always self-destructs. It either inflates itself by itself, which is called pride, or it deflates under the awareness of its own insufficiency, which is called self-hatred. And man, if that isn't like the truest paragraph I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. What a dramatic pendulum swing that we go through. And I, I can only speak for myself, but like swinging to the far right, not politically of, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. I feel like a million bucks today. Everything I do is great. And then swinging to the far opposite end on the left of, wow, everything I do is worthless. I am just, as David would say in the Psalms, I am a worm. And it's like, yeah. Something, something about those two extremes is not good, huh? Yeah. I think then Roar goes on to talk about, um, in this chapter, he talks about entitlement as being a poor teacher, kind of talks through the idea that like, if you haven't experienced stuff, um, you really can't learn anything. Uh, I think it's mm. a big piece of what entitlement is, right? He talks about the cross and that there's a cruciform pattern to our reality, a collision of cross purposes. Um, <clears throat> our world is filled with contradictions needing to be reconciled, inconsistencies within us and between us. And uh, life is neither perfectly consistent and rational, nor is it a chaotic mess. And I think, you know, look at the look at some of the people around you that you may be close with, or maybe you were close with in school or something, where you just you just knew that they didn't really grasp things well. And it comes from a place of entitlement. Um, and again, we're not saying that in the typical boomer bashing way. We're just saying it in the sense of like, if you haven't had to 
wrestle with some of these things, these inconsistencies, these, these moments where you're like, I don't know why God doesn't show up here. And I'm, I would expect God to show up here. Um, you know, it can, you can kind of miss things. One of the things I always said about working, I worked in a, uh, a more affluent area of Pennsylvania for a little while. And I said, I used to say like, my job is not to get the rich man through the eye of a needle. My job is to pull his kid through. And mm. uh, I mean, there's the pride in that. I mean, I don't mean it that way, but, <laughs> but just like when you're, when you're the son of somebody who has the means to do things, um, you, you kind of don't see the point or the need for, for something like Christ or something like spirituality or something like uh, God because um, you just haven't had to come up against some of those things sometimes. So I think entitlement can really be one of those things, as Roar says, that really don't teach us much. Yeah, I want to tack on to the, the last line you read and read a little further. He says, this is 174, life is neither perfectly consistent and rational, nor is it a chaotic mess. The next line is, it does contain, however, constant paradoxes, exceptions, and flaws. That is the shocking and disappointing revelation of the cross, but it's also a great weight off our backs because it leads to patience, humility, non-judgment, and suffering love. Um, and I think one of the struggles that we have is even us, we, we recognize that like we can't put all of our theology into a box and a perfect list and it's super linear. Yeah. And yet we, we still try to, right? Even like we're talking about how you can't do that. And, and secretly, Mike gets off a podcast. I'm like, all right, how do I make everything line up and make sense together? <laughs> but realistically, like a paradox is something that seems contradictory and yet does coincide or exist. And there's mm. plenty of places like that's kind of how I see theology in the world at this point. We don't like that. And we're not that way when it comes to other humans that we interact with. We don't view them as paradoxical people, even though when people judge us on just a one dimensional linear way, we're like, no, you're not getting the full picture. You need to see these other pieces. You're like, well, that's contradictory. How can you be both of those things at once? You're like, I don't know. It's just who I am. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that's part of what it means to live in reality is to name that piece. But mm -hmm. we're connecting that to the cross. It is shocking and disappointing that the cross is kind of a free pass in that way. It's also freeing and, and life-giving yeah. because it, it, it frees us of this weight on our backs to, to think that we're ever going to be perfect. Um, uh, yeah, there's like, a, like when you think of the story of the prodigal son or what is also often called the, pro the story of the parable of the good father, um, that's, that's what the older son is wrestling with in that moment. He's just like, what do you mean? He's allowed to be back here. What do you mean? He's allowed to have all the things that I have after I've been here all this time. And how many times do we fall into either one of those categories where we don't struggle with something and we see somebody giving somebody grace for something else. And we are like, what do you mean? And then there's times where we struggle with something and we're like, please give us grace in this moment because uh, there's no way that we can do this on our own. And this is our struggle. And other people look at us and go, what do you mean? Right. And in the midst of that is the cross or our, you know, what that ultimately points to is the good father or the, you know, the, the God like figure in the, in the story that says, both of you are accepted here. Both of you should be in this place and we can, we can live in harmony together. 
And neither of you have to understand the other person's place in that. Like that's the importance and the power and man, there was ever a more potent image for the church to hear and not just church of 2021 church of all time. Right. Pointing out the sins of reality of the secular world. There's that word again to say, Oh, these people have left. They're not doing it the right way, et cetera, et cetera. And then they come and kind of get a free pass at the last minute. And the, the way the parable ends is we don't know what the older son's decision is, right? Yeah. We don't know if the older son ever joins in on the party. We just know mm-hmm. that the father has mm-hmm. said, this is how it is. I want you there too. And that's like, oh man. And that, that I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good uh, transition to the next section, which is the true, the true self has never truly been um, damaged or injured or been hurt. Sorry, this language. And he's, yeah quoting gk chesterton here and he talks about what's called the mystical minimum that's what chesterton calls it and the mystical minimum of reality is gratitude uh, and to summarize a couple paragraphs there he's saying everything that's given the fact that you're even breathing today is a pure gift none of us have earned it none of us have a right to it all we can do is kneel and kiss the ground somewhere anywhere everywhere and he's kind of pointing out some of the misconceptions we have specifically, I think in the United States about uh, rights and how we connect our faith to our nationalistic rights. And he says, uh, I certainly believe in human rights and I don't want to make light of them, but the Bible doesn't talk about human rights as such. The only rights the Bible talks about are the rights of widows, orphans, and the poor. The little ones have rights that must be respected, and the word of God always protects the bottom dwellers and the unprotected. But in our typical Western narcissism, we use God to protect the top, the elite, those who already have too much. Um, And so he's kind of pointing us back to this idea that like when we, the mystical minimum, right? And I think the, the language that Chesterton's using there, I haven't read Chesterton directly on that quote, but Um, is saying like our ability to engage with mystical reality or the divine is gratitude. When you choose to be grateful for all you have right now, regardless of where you are, whether you're in a third world country or first world country, and that's easy to say from a position of privilege, but it's something that's been done all throughout human history, even, even in the midst of some of the worst persecution throughout Christian history in thousands of years, choosing a, a position, perspective of gratitude has shifted that that quote unquote mystical minimum in a way that says human rights are not the end all be all and what we see in our political sphere here is a debate on both ends about how without these rights then nothing else can be made right and i think that's very important to recognize like we that is where progress should be sought like we should be furthering the kingdom of god at every step that we can, we shouldn't get complacent just because it's good enough for us because it's certainly not for others. Mm. However, choosing to start each of those days with a deep sense of gratitude about where we are, where we're starting today, as opposed to where we're trying to get to is an important mental shift. I don't think that undoes the work that we're about to do, but it does shift our attitudes towards the work we're doing. Mm. Yeah. I was kind of, brought back to a conversation I was having with somebody in this area where um, there was somebody in a church or something. I don't remember where it was that, that had reached out to a friend of mine and said like, Hey, I don't, I don't have a place for the night. Um, Is there any way you could 
you could help me to to find something or to to is there anything like I, can I park my car at your church um, and just sleep in it? And this person was like, "What should we do?" I was like, "Get in the hotel room." And they said, uh, "Well, I don't want to. I just don't want to be taken advantage of. I just don't know what their true heart is." And I said, "If they stay in the hotel room and they actually had a house." is it really worth the headache of a hundred dollars to make you feel bad? Like, are you really worried about losing a hundred dollars? <laughs> They're like, no. And I was right. like, you probably will never hear whether or not um, it was needed or not, but do you feel like you're doing the right thing? They're like, yeah. And I was like, then it's quite simple. Like, don't worry about that. Like you're not going to be hurt because you feel like you did the right thing. And it's not going to hurt you. So it's don't let it hurt you. <laughs> and I think sometimes we just really, <clears throat> we really try to make sure we get things a hundred percent right. And uh, that really isn't ever the case. Um, sometimes it is sure. But, but a lot of times we're living in that, in that space in between where we have to discern what the wisest choice is and uh, leaning towards the decisions that care for people and leaning towards the decisions that give rights to people who say that they're, they're in, uh, in bad situations. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think one of the things that, that I really appreciated about this is that what we've done, um, is that we, we become ungrateful and we become complainers and we get upset about these things um, and don't live our lives out of gratitude, even in spite of the things that we see in the world. And he says that that's using, that's uh, wrongly um, claiming our victimhood. And he says what Jesus does uh, with his victimhood is quite the opposite. He used it to liberate others and we use it to empower, empower ourselves and punish others. And I think mm. just reminding ourselves constantly of that, that, the victimhood that that Jesus experienced is far from the victimhood we often try to claim, and uh, there's 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 a lot of work that we can continually do in that area. And it's not always like claiming victimhood in court or claiming it in front of an institution or things like that. But sometimes it's just as much as saying, "I got hurt by X Y Z person." Yeah, you may have, but uh, how does that in the in the process of of those things? what did Jesus do with that hurt and that pain? And so that's where the healing balm can come. Sure. There's some things that yes, we take care of, or we have courts in order to take care of those things. But uh, sometimes we often claim that in areas where we don't need to, uh, to be tied to that. Right. And he, he goes on right there. Uh, this is kind of a double whammy of what he's saying. We do have rights. And most of us thank God for this new insistence on human rights and human dignity. But someone must also protect the rights of the whole, the common good. And like he's pointing to like our call as followers of Jesus is not like just our individual rights, but rather like what is going to further the community as a whole. And that is what is removed in, in most of the conversations uh, that I hear appealing to scripture for, for when we talk about these things. And he, he goes on at the end of this uh, section, you know, 177, he says, free choice itself has become our idol. I choose, therefore I am, has become the new formula. 
I'm afraid that such freedom will actually end up destroying all freedom for everybody. The only way to hold such a society together will be by more and more laws and enforcement of those laws. And so he's pointing to this idea that like we've become so obsessed as a people with like our own individualistic ability to choose things. And we've like, uh, kind of downloaded that into our theology. Like we've brought our cultural view of society into how we think our entire faith should function. When in reality, it's always been about the good of the community. And so he goes on, he says, virtue is not one isolated value, but it's a relationship between several values. True virtue is another name for holy wisdom. Wisdom is clearly more than intelligence, knowledge of facts or information. We've talked about that plenty. Wisdom is synthesis more than analysis. It's paradoxical more than linear, and it's a dance more than a march. And so I think that there's just a lot there of pointing us back towards, no, what is our actual call? Like the limits that exist in our lives and in our reality um, are there for a reason. And it's important that we ask questions about why they're there, but we can't demonize every boundary and limit that is around us either. And we have to start with this wisdom perspective of saying, okay, how do I synthesize this with what I know to be true? Like, what is the paradoxical truth underlying this? Am I dancing? Like, am I learning how to make art out of what is the reality around me? Or is it just a linear march? Is it just a pecking order? Because that changes the way we think about how the world functions. Yeah. Right after that, he says, uh, wise people avoid the ideological hysteria that claims this is the whole truth, the only truth, and the only way to look at it. Too often in the name of some, de- of some denied but self-serving concern. And uh, I just think that more and more as, as I've grown older, I just see how much this is often at play. And I, and I also see how much people have like these little, these little mantras and these quips to help them like just quickly get out of a situation or answer, answer a problem that they have rather than wrestling with it. You know, um, not that this is any sort of wrong and it's not good in some situations, but we've seen how like faith over fear has been used. And it's like, it really doesn't, it really doesn't compute right now for what we're talking about in certain situations. Right. Um, and I think he goes on to say, when we have a new insider experience, we tend to absolutely absolutize that experience and dismiss everything prior to it. I see a lot of that in America since we are a now, quote unquote, now society. We read a new book and temporarily see what we find there as the only way to interpret everything, throwing out the first 30 years of our lives and all other paradigms of explanation. No wonder people are fragmented. And so it's just this idea that we are looking for the easy answers. We are looking for the, the neat buttoned up like way to figure it all out. And that doesn't always exist. And like, if we really pay attention to it, the world and what we're kind of like the way you maneuver through this world is that understanding and is that constant, like struggle with what's the wise decision to make right now? Uh, What's Mm. the, uh, what's the thing we need to move into and, and really discerning that can, it, it kind of is the thing. It's like um, when they say, like when athletes perfect a craft, they're like, yeah, the, the game is fun and it's a thrill, but it's the 5.30 a.m. wake-ups, getting to the gym, being there, practicing, shooting the same shot 500 times, all of those sorts of things that 
like if you don't love the work of it then it like it it's not going to serve you long term it's not going to be the thing that that keeps you alive and and i think what we're seeing right now um in the church on both sides of the spectrum is like i don't think we really love <laughs> the work of reading scripture i don't think mm. we really love the word of dis- the work of discernment in what uh, Christ might be calling us to. I don't think we really love that. We really love being right. And yeah. we really, actually, I think we really love politics right now. Um, and I also don't think that that's right either. Uh, so I think getting back to a place where we find this holy work, this what we would call sacred work um, of discernment, of wise counsel of listening and heeding the instructions that we find and also figuring out how we move forward, but also have limits to where we're going and boundaries that we don't cross until we know that God's leading us in those directions. Like that's the work. And yeah, sometimes it's a sludge. Sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes it feels like we're in a place of moving forward. Sometimes it feels like we're in a place of holding back and uh, you know, Falling in love with that again, I think is something that I'm trying to do. Yeah. I mean, this is a great way. I mean, it's, it's almost like we're planned it this way. He ends a chapter <laughs> with exactly what you're saying. He, I'm not going to tell this whole story of this guy, Erasmus, but basically he was a man who was trying to point out the middle ground between Martin Luther and the Pope saying, hey, you guys actually agree on a lot of what you're saying. Um, and he's like, Coincidentally, or ironically, uh, the church agreed to that, to Vatican Council too. So it, it <laughs> took us until the 1900s, but eventually we were like, hey, yeah, it seems like we were actually on the same page about most of this stuff. But what he says is like, you know, Rasmus is questioning like our need for all these answers. And he says, is it not possible to have fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit without being able to explain the philosophical distinction between them all perfectly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, theology of trinity the word trinity doesn't exist in scripture took hundreds of years to come up with that term it's not something that is clear as your pastor says it is right it's something that we have built upon over time erasmus is saying hey like you can still engage with god without understanding every nitty-gritty detail and his point being that this is what liberation theologians have picked up on already in the 20th century saying that jesus clearly taught orthoproxy right behavior more than orthodoxy, right ideas. Mm. Often Jesus, when he's talking to people in the gospels, he says, what do you think the law says? And they say it and he goes, all right, good answer. And then they question him again. And that's when he goes into a parabolic episode to help them get it on a different level. But it's all about the things that you're doing. Cue the book of James, faith without works is dead, right? Which Martin Luther hated and wanted to remove from uh, our Bibles. So, you know, you can work that out with your canonization views. Um, But orthopraxy versus orthodoxy, like it, it doesn't really matter if you have a bunch of great ideas, if they don't lead to great actions. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking back to our interview with Justin McRoberts. He yeah, says, I you know, was too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, if, if my right ideas make me a worse person, then I don't want them. And I mm-hmm. think there's something deeply significant there. Yeah, um, he was saying about how like he had a young life leader. He's like, didn't really agree with him, but loved his life. And yeah, really, that's yeah. part of it. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. One of the things, um, 
Rohr says here is the institutional church has to get beyond needing answers and theological conclusions for every possible scenario that arises yet. We are the very ones who love to preserve the notion of mystery. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. It's just funny working in a Presbyterian church because like, you know, they come up with new uh, statements of faith and, you know, things that we affirm, which I think is important, but it is kind of funny because it's like the Bible only answers so many questions. So it's like, it's just a never ending list. But I I think that is important while also recognizing it'll never end. Like, yeah, well, the work that we are called again, uh, I hate to be on this kind of soapbox, but like the scripture is on one hand, the people of God working out what it means to be the people of God. Um, and like Paul is very on the on the job writing these uh, things to people saying like, hey, this is how we do it. Uh, this is this is like how you how we should react to this in the moment um, and how we should do this stuff. And then like we just revelation ends and we stop and we're like, yeah, there's no more like figuring this out. Like the answer's in there right. uh, in a weird way like i agree with you the answers in there but it involves a lot of work and wrestling and 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 like figuring it out um not just like oh yep there's a verse perfect answers the question like i don't know if you've seen this i think this is actually kind of funny um is like there's a levitical law that basically says like hey if you have like a really serious disease like you should be outside the camp you should wear unkempt clothes so people know that you're sick and you should wear cloth over the bottom of your face. And like, <laughs> that's hilarious given where we are as a community right now or as the world. But like, I'm never going to post that and be like, yep, see, like, because that's not how it works. Um, there is wrestling. There is working that we have to do to figure out these things. Like maybe that for some of us is true, that that is how we go about living out this thing we call faith, but, uh, just pointing to that and being like answer daily double, you know, like that's not how it works. Right. Um, well, we're coming up on an hour on chapter 10 and I think an hour is usually our, our, (laughs) our goal for a limit. We're going to do two chapters today, but maybe we'll wrap up there and surprise you get one extra episode with us. I guess, you know, um, this is really easy for Mike to say live because Mike doesn't have to edit all of these episodes. No, I'm just kidding. Oh my <laughs> uh, so we're going to end this episode and we will be back for the next two weeks now with uh, episodes for you. So if you are loving what you're hearing, we would love it if you would take a second to rate, review us anywhere you are listening to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at faith underscore restructured. You can also uh, Venmo me directly if you just have a feeling that you want to give. Don't do that. Don't do that. I will send it right back. Anyhow. And then Venmo makes all the money. Have a good day, everybody. Go in peace. Take care, y'all.